And welcome back to A Pagan Heart in Maine. On today's show, I talk about the element of water and share a wonderful interview with Blake and Gwaine, hosts of the Broadcast from the Cove podcast we recorded last summer. To start us out, this is Celtic legend with the Forest of Morisk. First, the forest seemed a bleak and empty place. It was dark and lonely, we were lost within its space. Now it glows with beauty beyond me. So on other episodes, I've talked about how Earth represents stability, a set and steady path, how air represents freedom, air is change, and the winds blow where they will. Fire is about transformation, about raw emotion and passion. And today I want to talk about the element of water. Water represents the unknown. It represents another world. It represents spiritual influences in our lives and it represents the unseen flow of life itself. Even though the surface may be calm, 
There are many currents underneath, a whole world different from our own. Down there, instead of flocks of birds flying in the sky, schools of fish fly over their world. Water shapes the things around us, the waves crashing, the tides rolling in and out. It seems weightless in its path, yet it takes the shape of whatever container you put it in. It exists naturally in many forms, as mist, as vapor, as clouds, as ice, as liquid. It reflects back the world around us. There is a pattern, like air and breath, in and out. We are born of the water of the womb. If fire is transformation, then water is transition. It may seem the same, yet where I see fire as true metamorphosis, I see water as more modulation, a leading passage, the flow. Water is soothing. It refreshes the body and soul. Now, one of the things in life that I battle with is ADD. And they call it a disorder, but I don't treat it that way. One of the ways I cope with it is not to battle it head on. I work with it. I follow it where my brain wants me to go and go with the flow. Water represents wisdom. Water moves in the path of least resistance and takes the form of its container. It's about the flow. It's about having faith. But it's also about the ripples. The waves are active and passive at the same time. So how does the element of water affect us? What lessons can we learn to make it a part of our journey? Well, water reflects. When you gaze into a still pond, the reflection is clear. When the water is disturbed, the reflection is distorted. Allowing yourself to simply be still and at peace, there is a quiet energy and force in the stillness of the pond. There is so much stress and motion in the world that everything can become distorted and hard to see. By allowing yourself to be still, taking time to gaze at the quiet reflection in yourself, it allows you to see things clearer. There is energy in the still pond. It is here also that in the quiet places we create within ourselves, we grow closer to deity. We start to listen to the messages around us. Like water, we allow ourselves to take the shape of our vessel, to go with the flow. The roles we play change, and we fit ourselves to the shape we are called to take. Water is power. The force of the wave is constant and wears down the sharpest boulders into round pebbles. The ripples go outward. What we do affects a larger part of the world. It's active and passive, force and release. It's not the amount of pressure that makes the boulders move. It's the action of the waves, that constancy. Water takes the form of the container and fills every part. It also pushes outward. So you can use water and its lessons to fill every part of your life. Follow the flow, but push against the sides of the embankment. Be the wave crashing against the shore, yet relax in between. You can be constant without being drained. Be the running brook. Carry yourself forward over the path and let the tides ebb and flow and find time to be still, to reflect clearly and soak in this life around you.
that was Gwen Nighthawk and Blake Octavian Blair. And the name of the song was... Terra Locust. Terra Locust. And I have both of them in the studio today. Um, they also do the podcast, Broadcast from the Cove. And welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So you guys came up for the barbecue, and we thought we'd just do a podcast today and and uh, see where it goes. So uh, both of you are musicians. You play the flute. We play various different world flutes. The, uh, we probably started with the Native American style flute. It has a really intricate interesting history it's really not native american at all at this point anymore but um we can talk about that if we'd like okay um i guess probably the 1970-ish era sometime back there way long ago when i was a child no (laughs) not that old there were hippie vans involved there were (laughs) there were hippie vans hippie vans are good a man by the name of michael graham allen he decided he was I don't exactly know how he got involved but he found this native style flute that was really easy to play it was the type of thing that you just pick it up you blow into it and anybody can play it but it sounded god awful yeah hmm. I mean you just had like this hollow tube with a couple of holes randomly drilled into it the thing that like it in was... the flute world we we say, try to be kind and say oh the flute is in tune with itself <laughs> okay. But he was a concert shakahachi. He played the shakahachi. He played the shakahachi at concert quality. Well, that's easy enough to say. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the nice thing about the shakahachi is it's a very intuitive scale. Anything you play sounds good on it. Mm-hmm. So you have this flute that comes from Japan, the shakahachi, which comes from Japan. So you have this Japanese scale on a Native American-style body, and he merged the two together, and he's really the first one who started making what we now call today as the Native American flute. Yeah, that's why you'll see a lot of makers and artists will say it's the Native American-style flute, because a lot of the flute makers do not have Native American ancestry or blood, but they're making that style of flute. And the name is kind of this weird misnomer, too, because as Gwen said... You know, you've got this tuning that's essentially from Asia mm-hmm. on the body style of the artifacts of these flutes that were found in in the North American region. So it's kind of already a fusion instrument, you know, and, cool. and like many things these days, it's therefore not necessarily owned by one culture, although, of course, you know, it's still associated with Native American culture, and rightfully they have a claim to it, too, as, as we said, so... That's where you get the term Native American style flute. And for people out there, if anybody's ever listened to like a Coyote Oldman album, like I've had a lot of friends who I say way back, have you ever heard of Coyote Oldman? Oh yeah, I had their albums way back when. Well, Coyote Oldman is Michael Graham, Graham Allen. Ah, okay. So, you know, it's uh, Rainbird is one of them, was really popular. And like I think Tear of the Moon was another. And uh, the most... Was the most recent one Time Travelers? Yes. Yeah. So, and yeah. Um, they're all out of print now, but he still sells them as, as digital. They're all over iTunes. Mm-hmm. So, if you want a piece of history, y'all go get some some Coyote Oldman too. So, how how did you guys get into flute playing? I had a friend. I have a friend who lived somewhere in the Upper Midwest where it's brutal cold. I can never remember if it's Michigan, Minnesota, or Wisconsin. Because it doesn't get cold in Maine at all. No, no. <laughs> never, never. 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 Um, and we, we were friends online, and he would record little snippets and send it to me. And I'm like, oh, that's so beautiful. I wish I could play music like that. And he goes, you can. It's really easy. I'm like, yeah, sure. Everything's easy when you know how. Mm-hmm. And he kept pressuring me until one day one of our friends who was in the our local local at the time in North Carolina Reiki community decided she wanted to get kits that you could buy online and make her own flute. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, there's this guy who's telling me I need to learn how to play. There's this local woman who wants to make her, make them fine. It's like 25 bucks to get the kit. Let's go ahead, buy it, make the damn thing, mm-hmm. and see where we go. So I did, and I still have that flute, and it sounds god-awful. <laughs> But, Leave flute making to the professionals. Yes. 
But I made it. I thought it sounded beautiful at the time. People loved it. And that really kind of was the spark and the catalyst to, to what you've what you just heard and what we do now. Then you end up getting some professional flutes, and I got some. And it snowballed from there. We became friends with flute makers, and then we got really interested in the rim blown flutes. One example is the shakuhachi. Um, there's a I, I don't want to say a, a history because. Um, in the American Southwest, again, Michael Graham Allen, he went to Smithsonian's and extra excavation sites and museums and found uh, flutes that were in what they call Broken Flute Cave, quote-unquote. And he took measurements of them, found out where all the finger holes and these broken flutes, he then went back to his shop and made... We're talking like flute resurrection. Wow. Yeah. These things were essentially extinct for almost a thousand years and he decided to go back to his shop and make one cool yeah so then we start getting into playing those types of flutes and, and these are the ones that you have to blow over the edge at a very specific angle yeah. in order to get to play you don't just blow into it like like the flute no you have to have a very specific embouchure it's not the same embouchure but it's kind of like a classical like silver flute player Mm-hmm. has to have an embouchure. You have to have one for these flutes, too. And for those of our listeners who are not musically inclined, the embouchure is the fancy term for the shape of your mouth. Yeah. Right. You don't, You can't just make an O and blow. You have to make the right O at ah. the right angle. And then I got into the world percussion, and that came in. Yeah, he got into the tar and Middle Eastern hand drums. African udu and Tibetan singing bowls. And uh, I love, love... Percussion instruments and anything that makes any anything small that makes a sound. Yeah, cool. and what I like about like all the world music instruments, and you know, eventually Gwen learned to play the didgeridoo, which is in things now. But the thing about the world instruments is there's a both ethereal and earthy quality to them. You know, a lot of them have a very ethereal sound, but a lot of them are made from very earthy materials. You know, flutes are made from the wood and. I've always thought that the sounds from the instruments, they, they touch the heart. Mm. You know, your, your heart has a rhythm with it. And the vibration of those type of instruments, they just bring you closer to the earth. Yeah. yeah. That's always our goal, and if, if that's what people feel, then we've met our goal. <laughs> yeah, you know, and as shamanic practitioners, there's, we actually started playing the flutes a bit before, like, the official entry into our studies with the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, which we've trained extensively with. But, you know, even so, the, it has a quality to it. I mean, the the scale that's on the modern Native American-style flute is pentatonic. There's all kinds of studies about, oh, like, the actual... group. Yeah. <laughs> the pentaton- yeah, the pentatonics are great. I like them. But the, the pentatonic scale, which if people don't know what that is... You have penta which means yeah. five, five, and tonic, which means tone or note. So you have five notes, pentatonic. Yeah, and basically, you know, all, all the notes kind of resonate with each other in a pentatonic scale. So anything you play sounds good, which makes the native-style flute very approachable for somebody who wants to make music but doesn't have classical training. You actually have so, places now that, like, instead of, you know, forcing kids into the old recorder elementary mm-hmm. school music program... A lot of them are using Native American flutes now because, you know, the pentatonic scale also studies that it's very calming and soothing and it actually is healing, so. See, I can never understand why when I hear people play in a recorder, it sounds so beautiful, and then when I play it, it sounds like a children's toy. Dying geese, right? <laughs> you know? My guess is it's the quality of the recorder. You can get recorders that cost more than some cars. Wow. Yeah. So here's a question, just for the flutes and everything. Like the flutes that we have have six holes, and you have to cover a hole Mm -hmm. to get the notes that you want. Why do they have the sixth hole in there? I have no clue. (laughs) (laughs) I used to know, but that got pushed out. You know, I can't go on record to say that this is exactly correct history, but I want to say, because I'm not perfect with history, I'm not a history teacher, you know, is that, um, I think a lot of the early ones did not have the sixth hole. Like, if you go to the artifacts. I think it was added later. And it gives you... It's not 
exact. It's not in that pentatonic scale. It's like there's a term for that extra sixth note. It's pro- probably a different scale if yeah. you take your hand off of the hole. And it is. I lost my whole train of thought. Okay, oh, listeners, I, go I out a... and get a flute <laughs> and take a look at that that those and and uh, get back with me on that. I have <laughs> a different memory than Blake does. I thought the artifacts did have six holes. So as as we developed the Native American style flute as we know it today, it didn't go from artifacts to what we know today. There was a little bit of history and stumbling blocks along the way. People were trying to figure out best placement of the holes, best fingering combinations, give you the most flexibility. I think adding that sixth hole, one, the original artifacts did. So as we were developing what we knew today, and I say we as if I was part of that, (laughs) but as we were developing what we have today, we wanted to keep those six holes because it was part of the artifact. But we also wanted to integrate it into more Western-sounding and contemporary scales. Okay. I'll go with that. Sure, why not? Yeah, I know that the, the sixth hole is used a lot when people want to try to play Western music in a more diatonic kind of a way. Because yeah. there is a way you can finger the notes on a Native American-style flute in order to play more Western music. It, it doesn't follow the standard up-down playing procedure of a pentatonic scale. And I have friends that play the flute like very skillfully in that manner. But it's not the manner in which I play the flute. You know, it, I, mm-hmm. we, our music is actually entirely improvisational. We don't have uh, written down on sheet music anything. No two songs are ever the same. Even our CD, Canyon Storm, that you played the song from earlier, none of that was rehearsed. That was all just recorded. Mm-hmm. So it was done in layers, but it was not pre recorded. We didn't have sheet music. We started with a concept. You know, with us, the music's very visual. It's like, we have a scene in our head, like the song Canyon Storm. We're all sitting around, it's like, okay, what if you're in the desert southwest, and there's this windstorm that's sweeping through this canyon at sunset, and you can hear the wind, and then we went from there, and the song developed. So, like, the songs are are pictures in our minds. Mm -hmm. And, like, the song you played, Terra Locus, is like a village... And people are walking around in the village, and commerce is going on, and children are playing, and people are visiting. And as you're walking through this village, you're seeing the scene of village life, cool. and that's that's what you know that was. So the songs are these pictures and these vignettes that happen in our mind, you know, or or are they in our mind? You know, that's something to say too. Are we seeing places and having visions from the other worlds? You know, shamanically mm-hmm. speaking. So that's. That's where the songs come from, you know. See, I've I've always thought myself because I I love playing with different sounds and different music, is that a lot of times you know people say, well, how do you how do you write stuff? How do you write music? And I thought, you know, I don't really write music. It's more you just quiet your your mind. You hear what's what the universe is giving you. You hear what's around you because the, the earth has a rhythm. It has has a song. And then all you have to do is listen to that and then just match up the notes on whatever instrument to what you're hearing in your head. And the ordinary reality version of that is I'm lazy and I don't want to learn music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one way to look at it. But I prefer, yeah. I prefer like, you know, I, I have an electric keyboard mm-hmm. and uh, I prefer using what I call a half-crazed drunken monkey method. And basically, you bang on the keys like a half-crazed drunken monkey until you hear something that sounds good, and then yeah. you remember that, and then add it to that, and eventually you have a song. Yeah. I like that method. <laughs> yeah, but the history of the Native American cell food is long and winding. And we actually play, like I said, a lot more instruments now than what we did on the CD. The CD, which we're proud of, but that's actually like our very early work, you know, as far as music is concerned. And uh, we actually recorded that... Well, Gwen was in graduate school working on his doctorate, and it was crazy. We recorded a CD while <laughs> he was in graduate school, and I mean, they were literally like, you know, nights where we're in this studio until like 3 a.m. It was absolutely insane, but it was just kind of this, this spirit-inspired thing, and, uh, you know, when it comes to the, the history of the flute, though, back to that, long and winding, that, that's what I'm babbling, is long and winding. <laughs> 
I'm not, I'm not an expert, and neither is Gwen. I don't think you'd say in the history. All our history comes from, you know, it's handed down. Some of it you can find, various sources. It's published. But also we have a friend who's a flute maker who is just ingenious with the whole history. He's got what I call the petting zoo. He's got these, you know, this huge collection of flutes, and a lot of them are Coyote Oldman made flutes. Mm-hmm. And Gwen and I are proud to each own a flute made by Coyote Oldman, too. And um, but he's you know a flute maker, our friend that knows the history, and he's a flute history buff. Yeah, he's gone to the Smithsonian, and put on the white gloves into the collections because they'll let you do that. Oh wow! And cool. he's viewed them and taken measurements and things, and he actually makes some really cool flutes that are replicas of the bird heads, bird headed flutes that are in the Smithsonian. Oh cool! And I've got one of those from him, and so you know there's a bit of flute nerd thing that kicks in and. But yeah, the instruments, you know, there's a spiritual quality to it for music for us. And that same guy actually helped us when we got into shamanic practice, helped us make um, our buffalo hide drums that were our first shamanic drums. And it was a, it's a fun story because we didn't know how to make them, but we wanted to make them. So we ordered the buffalo hides and the frames and things. And he came over, we soaked the hides, and he showed us how to make them because he does a lot of powwows too. And he's, oh, yeah. he also can make drums. He doesn't make a lot of them for business-wise, but he knows how. And so the and buffalo is such a tough hide. I am not butch enough to make a drum. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, you know, anyone that knows us, we are not the butchest of creatures. <laughs> and so it would take, like, two of us, like, to pull these, you know, leather thongs tight for the raw hide of the buffalo. To get over. stretched. Because yeah. it's a very, very, you know, it was, we were all sore the next day, and he was happy to help us. And but. apparently he was sore for two weeks. <laughs> but we appreciated the help because we wouldn't be able to do it without him. Cool. But yeah, so that's, you know, natural hide drums, which natural hide drums, of course, you know, you're working with the spirit of the materials, too. And, you know, in shamanism, everything that is is alive. Right. So it's very animistic. So in our belief system, you know, the com- the computer has a spirit, the microphone has a spirit, the tree outside, all these things have a soul and a spirit, and we can talk and communicate. Everything is alive. All that is is alive. So the drum itself has a spirit that is the drum spirit. The hide had a spirit, the frame had a spirit, etc. And then we moved to New England, and we also had to buy what's kind of like the, we call the shamanic world over kind of standard, the all-climate standard, which is like the Remo buffalo yes. drum with a synthetic head. Now, a lot of people will balk at that. Like, oh, it's made from these synthetic materials. But everything that is is alive and has a spirit. Mm-hmm. And so even a synthetic drum has a spirit. And let me tell you, we learned why they're the standard. Because with humidity in New England or dryness in New England, depending on the season, we need the, you know, the all-season drum. So those are in the shamanic tool arsenal, too. And then it uh, you know flowed on to... I make uh, shamanic rattles now. So through the shamanic training and the music, sound is very important in shamanic practice. Mm-hmm. You know, the shamanic journey thrives on what's called sonic driving. And anyone that's read, say, The Way the Shaman by Michael Harner, or trained with anyone that's come through the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, knows this method. And it's, you know, the drum beat goes into a certain frequency, which helps you travel into the other worlds. It alters, they say, the brain state, and it allows you to help spirit flight out of your body to soul journey, so to speak. And we use rattles to call the spirits. And so, you know, different cultures have different tools. You know, the bells are often used, for example, in the Andes in Peru. I use the didgeridoo. The didgeridoo. So it kind of launched into that. Uh, Rattles are used a lot in healing. Uh, both break up energy blockages, but also to seal in work after it's done. Like if I do a power animal retrieval or a soul retrieval, I'll rattle around the person who I retrieved for to help seal in that work mm-hmm. and to smooth things out. Use it to call the spirits. And uh, again, it's working. I like natural materials, and I still use the rawhide and a lot of deer rawhide and found tree branches and... You know, I just, just, she wouldn't mind me saying I just finished a rattle for somebody that is really, really special. It's got graveyard holly. You know, it was a, we had a big snowstorm and some branches were downed on a holly tree in a graveyard. Mm-hmm. And the tree agreed to let us take branches. 
And so it's an exceptionally neat rattle because it's got the, the graveyard holly on it. So. so, so the tools you create are more for your own personal ritual and for your personal uh, energy workings, as yeah. opposed to something people wouldn't need to have a specific, just something that that. I guess uh, just vibrates with them. Yeah, on a, on a certain yeah. Level. Do all the work we do with just energy and intention, but having the tools helps alter state of mind and helps aid in the energy flow. Mm-hmm. I definitely say it adds because you you're adding the power of the spirits that you're working with. So you're not just working like you can do it with intention, but it's adding power because you're working with the spirits. Like you're working with the spirits that are associated with that rattle. Okay, the rattle I was talking about, the handle has the spirit of the tree in it. You have the spirit of the animal that the rawhide is made of. The spirit of the filling, whether that's stones or corn or quartz crystals. So you have those individual spirits. You're working with all of those. And then when I create the rattle, the rattle has its own spirit as a whole. The combination of the combination all of, those of all those, and then you have the fact that people have used rattles for ceremonial use for tens of thousands of years, yeah. and so the universe knows this is a ceremonial tool that you're using. That's mm-hmm. why you pick up a rattle, and you intend to call the spirits, and you shake that rattle, and you're calling the spirits. There's a saying that my teacher had in shamanism that was probably from his teacher and his teacher and his teacher beyond. If you call them they will come. And that's in regards to the spirits and your compassionate helping spirits. So, you know, you pick up that rattle, you shake it, and you call the spirits. The universe knows what that is, the spirits know what that is, and they are dispatched. So there's power behind it. You know, there's a lineage. You know, it's not a direct blood lineage, Mm -hmm. but anyone who's in shamanic practice, there's a lineage of other shamanic people. You know, your ancestors and my beliefs are not just those you're directly related to or descended from by blood. Right. right. So, you know, there's there's power in that practice. And so your while you, your ancestors are those who walked your shoes before you. Right. So while you can work without the tools, that's why I will go on record. I certainly prefer to work with them. Oh, me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know. And so Well, it's like, you know, all all of really modern day paganism for the most part is comes from from our ancestors it comes from beliefs but it's changed yeah. you know we yeah. can't we can't say that what we do today is the same thing that they did 500 years ago a thousand years ago silly reconstructionists yeah <laughs> yeah i you know working with making the rattles is something it's like it's another way though I also see it as many things. It's a way to honor the ancestors, to carry that on, that knowledge, to pass it on. A lot of um, my rattle-making knowledge comes from a medicine woman from has indigenous heritage that I know in Florida, who uh, actually for my 30th birthday, she sewed and made and gifted me handmade medicine bags. Cool. You know, we had this discussion because, you know, there's there's some sensitive topics. People wonder how... You know, I, I'm as white as they come. <laughs> okay. But here's the thing. Um, there's European shamanic ancestry. Well, you know, people want to argue, but, you know, you've got the Celts and the Druids. And all. These are very shamanic cultures, you know. Shamanism is, is the world over. And, but, you know, there's bleed-over practices. The Druids had crane bags, which are basically medicine bags. So mm-hmm. just, they're just called by another name. So Joyce made me these bags. She's kind of like, yeah, I've got absolutely no problem. She goes, and if you want to make Native American-style medicine bags, I have no issue with that either. You know where it comes from. You're honoring that. You're using it in a proper way. You're approaching it with respect to the spirits. The spirits call who they call. Who am I to argue the spirits? I've always said with any type of religion, you know, because there's so many crossovers between different faiths, different practices, and stuff, even even from Christianity into paganism, paganism into Christianity. Um, I've always found in my studies that you find truth where all of these paths cross. Mm-hmm. Everything else is just made up to try and understand uh, deity, understand the universe from a certain perspective. But it's where you find the universal truths that cross every single faith or most yeah. faiths 
that's where that's where you find the truth. And that fits really well with the philosophy of our tradition of shamanism, which is core shamanism. Yeah, core shamanism is developed independently by a few different people. One of them, Michael Harner. Another one, Alberto Veloto. And I'm sure I'm missing a few. Yeah, people. I mean, Alberto's stuff is is uh, flavored very heavily with uh, Central and South American trappings, where core shamanism, as taught by the Foundation for Shamanic Studies is not as much, but they both really go for the core philosophy. And the both these men are anthropologists. I was going to say were, but no, they're still with us. They are anthropologists. Mm -hmm. And they travel to various regions around the world, studying with different indigenous communities, or, or actually studying different indigenous communities, and then studying with different indigenous communities to find all the commonalities between the ancient Celtic Druids, to the South American shamans, the North American medicine men, the uh, the African African shamans. Mm -hmm. What is it that they all do? One of the things that they found was the drum, and so the drum is very central to the uh, the school, yeah. the foundation of shamanic studies. Some you form can, of sonic driving appears cross culturally. You can always joke, mm -hmm. you know, a Michael Harner graduate because they can't do anything without their bandana and their drum. Yeah. <laughs> bandana, of course, is some type of blindfold because when you shamanic journey, the darker it is, the better you see. I get that. I understand that. Yeah. A lot of people look at us with a, their eyebrow cocked when we say that. But no, it's true. You know, well, some type of rattle well, or bell or whatever to call the spirits is another. Well, I know, also point. think that we rely too much on certain senses yeah you know vision being one of the main ones you know we we uh and it's interesting because your vision is one of the easiest methods to be tricked you can't always believe what you see yeah. um eyewitness testimony is apparently one of the worst forms of evidence <laughs> oh yeah yeah because everyone sees something different yeah um, I mean, we each live our own universes. We all see things different. We all, we, we all see deity as different. Yeah. Even if we worship the same and we say, okay, our deity has these attributes, in our own journey, we still follow a, a deity who is unique to us, that we have a unique relationship yeah. with, so we see that, we translate that. Right. But when you turn off one of those senses, when you turn off the sight, that makes your other senses more um, mm -hmm. attuned. Your other oh. senses and your shamanic sight, or yeah. your psychic sight, mm -hmm. which reminds me of one of my favorite poems called Things a Shaman Sees. Oh. Yes, this, this poem, it's a uh, in a book called Spirit, Spirit, Shaman Song. And I think the first time I ever heard it was, it was read to us aloud. Actually, no, it was not read. It was recited. It's, mm -hmm. our, one of our teachers, it's the only piece of literature, basically, that he's ever committed to memory. So, let's go ahead and have Gwen read it. Things the Shaman Sees. Cool. Everything that is, is alive. On a steep riverbank, there's a voice that speaks. I've seen the master of that voice. He bowed to me. I spoke with him. He answers all my questions. Everything that is, is alive. Little gray bird, little blue beast, little blue breast, sings in a hollow bow. She calls, her spirits dances, sings her shaman songs. Woodpecker on a tree, that's his drum. He's got a drumming nose. And the tree shakes, cries out like a drum when the axe bites its side. All these things answer my call. Everything that is, is alive. The lantern walks around. The walls of this house have tongues. Even this bowl has its own true home. The hides asleep in their bags were up talking all night. Antlers on the graves rise and circle the mounds while the dead themselves get up and go visit the living ones. Cool. And, you know, That's that... A, a, I don't know if it's because of the content of the poem, the situation in which we heard it, or who it was who recited it, but Blake and I both get goosebumps it's every a, time we hear it. Yeah, it's especially meaningful to us for several reasons. I mean, you know, we have a great respect and affection for the teacher that read it to us. 
And it speaks on so many levels, like beliefs of shamanism. And, and one is that we're turning off ordinary reality sight, but we're turning on shamanic sight. And the other is that, you know, there's a line like, they, you know, they answer my call. And it's not, it's important to say, when you train in shamanism, you learn some context for that. It's not, you know, it's, I'm on a power trip, I call and things obey me. That's not it. It's the spirits and I have a relationship. Just like if I were to call Grey Wolf, he would answer my call because we have a relationship and we're friends. Mm -hmm. When I call the spirits and I ask them to aid me in my healing work, they answer my call. Yeah, the spirits, you know, we're, we're conduits for the spirits. The spirits are through us. You know, I do a solar tour for somebody and they thank me. I'm like, no, gratitude to the spirits. They did the work. They did the work. I'm an agent for the spirits. Well, and one of the lines of that poem, even this bowl has its own true home. I mean, that to me that's very really powerful it's because like, it's like the poem says everything that is is alive everything has a home when i was growing up my grandmother would come visit and my grandmother is this little five foot two and a bit scottish lady and she would say oh dear where does this live but she's trying to be the grandmother figure and help <laughs> put stuff away around the house my father would always answer that doesn't live grandma it's <laughs> a plate <laughs> no dad i'm sorry that plate is alive yeah, everything like, that is is alive you see I, i've had the same thought like when i break a dish or something you know if, if you drop a bowl and it breaks I usually say, well, it didn't want to be a bowl anymore. <laughs> there you go. You know, it, it wanted to be something else. Yeah. And uh, so I, I get that. I get that. Well, it's like you mentioned, too. You know, everybody sees deity in their own way or has their own deity. And especially in core shamanism, through our training, we meet our own spirits, our power animals, and our teachers. Teachers are seen to be, it's a term used in core shamanism for uh, an upper world spirit that not always, but usually will take a human form. You know, power animals are animal form, and teachers often take a human form. And sometimes they take a form that's recognizable in, in cultures. Some people with Christian backgrounds have angels, or it'll look like Christ to them. Or, you know, some people, like I have a, an Austrian shamanic colleague, and some of his spirits appear to him in forms of Germanic deities. I have some upper world teachers that take certain forms that are not these specific historical beings, but it's an individual spirit that's a teacher spirit of mine. So, I mean, it just, in core shamanism, we talk about, like, the, the universal principles and, you know, soul retrieval or power retrieval. These things actually appear across culturally. You know, they, they happen in South America, they happen in Siberia, they happen in First Nations cultures in North America, all independently. So it really is that intersectionality of practice. And so, you know, people really want to hammer, oh, is it cultural appropriation? Well, no, it's really not. And any specific cultural stuff that's used is done so with respect and generally permission. We were taught an offering uh, ceremony to spirits of nature through our training with the foundation that was from an, an elder, from an Ulchi shaman who since passed, whose name is Grandfather Duvan. It's, it's a good shamanic ritual with a bottle of vodka and some offerings, <laughs> you know. It, Grandfather Duvan worked with the foundation and wanted to pass this ceremony on so that it would live on. And his spirits told him to do that. So no, despite the fact that I'm doing this uh, shamanic ritual that's basically based on this indigenous practice by a Solchi shaman, no, that was passed on by directive of the spirits and as a gift from Grandfather Duvan to the foundation and then to me through our teachers at the foundation. So no, I, I don't feel that it's cultural appropriation. And other people may feel that it is, and I'd like to respect their opinion while disagreeing. You I know? get that. To, to use a drum and a rattle or to do these ceremonies is is actually very universal in, in trappings. And even a lot of the ceremonies that come through the Four Winds Society, which is the organization that Dr. Alberto Volodo has that's more South American in nature, Okay. a lot of that is he works with those indigenous peoples, uh, the Quiero in Peru, for example, 
and uh, despacho ceremonies. Now, see, I actually had my Reiki master teacher actually is a, a shaman trained by the Four Winds Society also. And we've trained through some shamanic techniques with her and another uh, shaman through the, the Four Winds Society. Society. It's been a long day. The barbecue was really good, y'all. There were mimosas. <laughs> um, so Mimosas are always good. Yeah. You know. We had mimosas and mojitos. So there you go. Through that, one of the things I learned is despacho ceremonies. And in Peruvian shamanism, there's a concept called Aini. And Aini, all at once, kind of means reciprocity. So right relationship, okay, through reciprocity. I give to the natural world and to the spirits, and they give back. Vice versa, it's a very two-way street, okay? Okay. And it's a ceremony that uses a big sheet of paper, or several, depending on the despacho, and it's to create balance. Now, there's you can do despachos for good business, for prosperity, to bless a wedding, to bless a property, to, to honor sell a house, to sell a house, to honor the deceased. Okay, one of the most powerful despachos is probably the death despacho. But um, and its offerings go into this, and you generally want to choose very earth-friendly offerings. Okay, that's. Certainly my preference, and it's usually the preference of the people, too. So plastic bottles are out? Yeah, yes. that's kind of kind of out. <laughs> Though plastic candy wrappers do sometimes find their way in. Sweets, mm-hmm. um, the, the South American shamans like to call Mother Earth Pachamama. And Mother Earth loves sweets, okay? Mm-hmm. So she loves chocolate, too. So, and it's a common ingredient in these despachos. And so, you know, you have flowers, and you have sugar for the sweetness of life, and rice, rice, and sometimes you'll put cotton balls to represent the snow on top of the sacred apus, and apus is their word for sacred mountains. Cool. And so all these things are representative, and then they get, it gets folded and wrapped up into a little medicine bundle, and it's disposed of usually in one of three ways. It's burned, and then, of course, you know, energy just changes form it doesn't go away so these offerings turn to smoke and they go up to the spirits or it is buried and then it it, of course decomposes and the gifts go into the earth or it's thrown into a body of running water clearly now this is why it's important to choose these earth-friendly biodegradable offerings okay because it's completely counterproductive to pollute mother earth correct the spirits are not going to like that yes plastic bottles are alive Everything that is, is alive. But they're not going to biodegrade. So Mm -hmm. let the spirit of that plastic bottle go to its next incarnation through your local recycling system. As another bottle, or as a bench. Or polar fleece. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? So yeah, there, there you have it. And so that's, you know, that's the despacho ceremony. And that is another ceremony on that train of conversation that I was saying where that was gifted. And so it's not appropriation if you've got the permission so like cool. use the term shaman to describe one of our teachers and people often ask us are you a shaman i think we ranted about this on our podcast i think even on the lo- most recent episode well it's getting ready to make a little appearance on a pagan heart in maine <laughs> my my response to that is always to to refer to grandfather duvan as we mentioned he was an old chi shaman uh, worked with the spirits for I think 90 years between with the time he could learn how to talk until the time he left this plane I believe mm-hmm. he deceased when he was 93 when people would ask him Grandfather Duvan are you a shaman his answer was I am merely a man who asks the spirits for help and mm-hmm. sometimes they listen Yeah. if somebody who's been doing shamanism for 90 years will not call himself a shaman mm-hmm. what right do I have now, I follow the philosophy, that philosophy as well, which was taught to me by Dana Robinson, who is our teacher and the faculty member for the Foundation for Shamanic Studies. And, you know, Dana's been doing shamanism for over 30 years himself and taught many people. And he's got a real calling as a teacher. And he, too, follows that philosophy. He's like, you know, I'm not going to argue Grandfather Duvan. It's that shaman is a term that we handle it, other people have different philosophies, and I respect that, but mm-hmm. we feel most comfortable using it as an honorific. Right. So, if I do work on you, and you want to call me a shaman after, that's a title of honor, and I thank you very much, and I'm going to let you call me that, but if you ask me, after you call me a shaman, 
or you go to your wife Sandy and say, oh, you know, Blake and Gwen are shamans. Oh, and you ask me, I'm going to say I'm a shamanic practitioner. Right, right. Because it's a place of, you know, I don't want to come from ego. It's, you know, humility and humbleness is very important in shamanism as well. It does not mean weakness. The Four Winds. The Four Winds Society has almost the exact opposite idea. And we're not saying they're wrong. But they feel to call yourself a shaman is to uh, invoke power. To claim right. your power. To claim right. your power and to claim your title. I kind of see both, both uh, uh, theories on it as valid. I see where people can get caught up in a title... For the that for themselves, and forget their real purpose and their real journey, and then I see where claiming a title does give you the power. But I think there's a very very fine balance, and 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 before you call yourself any title, you need to really know yourself and know why you are trying to claim that title, and whether you claim it or not doesn't necessarily mean you are that. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have many people in the pagan community who claim to be something that yeah. most people are looking at them and, yep, you're nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm very cautious about people who self-proclaim and about self-proclaiming. So you kind of like both philosophies, I think, have their validity, but you've got to you got to pick a camp and kind of go with it, because some things you can sort of straddle the fence, but this clearly, they're opposite camps. you got to pick one and go with it. So I, I choose the camp where I like to use it as an honorific. And we've had great teachers and colleagues who have trained extensively with the Four Winds Society, where we've trained extensively with the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, and there's great overlap. But those two philosophies are where there's a difference. And, you know, one of our teachers, you know, Alice, is one of the people that I would say that if anyone is a shaman she certainly is i certainly give her for my philosophy where it's an honorific Mm -hmm. i certainly call her a shaman as the honorific because she is she's a picture a perfect picture of integrity and integrity Mm -hmm. is important in shamanic practice too integrity and humility integrity and humility well i think that's that's it it's it's really it's really about practice it's really about the journey it's like you can call yourself any name that you want and if you are practicing, you know, you were saying a shamanic practitioner. Um, if you are actually practicing what your title is, then that's what you are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to just call yourself something um, and then to not be doing the work behind it, not be following the journey that you say you are on, then that's, that's where I have a problem. To practice shamanism is a way of life. Right. It's not, you know, there's a term Sunday Christian or Sunday pagan. Mm -hmm. I don't feel you can be a Sunday practitioner of shamanism. I don't feel you can be a Sunday pagan, but that's probably another podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's, you know, it's important to note that shamanism is generally not viewed as a religion. Mm -hmm. It's a spiritual system of techniques. I mean... We've sat in shamanic circle with people of so many different religions. We've Christians and Sikhs and Buddhists and Jews and pagans, you know. Really? Have we sat in circle with those? <laughs> Maybe just a few. And you know what? Shamanic folks, I've noticed we don't have these the arguments that you have if you go you have the Christo pagan show up at the pagan circle and all of a sudden everybody looks at him like the outcast. Oh. That's just not the case with shamanic people because Deities are viewed as category of spirits. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so those are your spirits? Okay, we're good. Exactly. Like, there's no questioning of it. Exactly. And there shouldn't be. There shouldn't be. You know, and it's it's just a, a frame, shamanism, it's, especially course shamanism, it's a framework. There's a common framework. Mm-hmm. We all know what we're doing. You know, there's some familiar formats. And we're all there working together. And it, it just, it really shows the, you know, I don't want to fall into, because people don't like this, but there's the, the, well, we're all one human race. Now, I don't say that to erase anyone's culture or ethnic background or heritage. It's not about erasure. I like Mm -hmm. to celebrate the differences and acknowledge them, but we're also all human, too, and there's a huge Venn diagram. And that's how I'm using the term. 
Yeah, it's about promoting mm-hmm. unity, not erasure, which is a big conversation that we're not going to open in the <laughs> pagan community right now. Erasure, it's not about that. It's about celebrating the differences and acknowledging them, but also seeing the commonalities. Now, I should have said at the beginning, now you both have a podcast yourselves. We do. Called uh, Broadcast from the Cove. Right. That's, that's Broadcasts, plural, yep. with an S. Broadcasts yep. from the Cove. Yep. And um, which is out out of the Boston area where you guys live. Now it is. Now it is. We started while we were in North Carolina, and yep, now it's definitely out of the Boston metro. So. And you guys talk everything from shamanism to knitting to <laughs> magic and witchcraft and gay culture and really a little bit our, of everything. Our podcast is an outlet for us. If people like to listen to it, all the better. Yeah. <laughs> And, and you know, as it's I, nice to know people listen. But I, I actually, uh, I, I think, as I told you earlier, I, I actually found the knitting podcast quite interesting. Did well, you yeah. have it? It was, it was. It was uh, I, I learned some stuff. So it's fun. You know, I think there's something in knitting for everyone somehow. <laughs> you know? I still maintain I want to keep sheep. Sheep. Yeah. There you go. You can knit right off the right off the That'd sheep. Be awesome. We, we've seen yeah. YouTube videos of people because. Gwen's actually taken up uh, spinning too with a drop spindle, mm, mm-hmm. and you know spinning fiber from roving. You know, we've seen people have a, an angora rabbit in their lap, and they'll pull fur off the rabbit oh, and right off. blow up their fur anyway, and then they'll they'll spin it on the wheel right off the rabbit. It's, and it's adorable. Yeah. Oh, I, I I don't know. I, I it doesn't harm them at all. I, I know I know it doesn't harm in. them, but it's like you see him pulling the fur off a poor little bunny. <laughs> Well, it's it's basically already off. The bunny's like, oh, thank right, God! Right, they're they're just they just dropping fur everywhere. I think yeah. Angora bunnies are all little divas, though. Little drag queens. Little drag yeah. queens. <laughs> you know, I suppose it's better than with sheep, where you just shave them, and you know. Like every Angora rabbit That's needs enough. a can of Aquanet yeah. Super Hole. But the only problem I find with sheep is, you know, if you leave them out in the rain, they shrink. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they have tiny little micro sheep, and it's not that bad. So. <laughs> That's how you get the small size mittens. That's ah, the, there, we go, yeah. there we go. So yeah. on that note, I thank think, you for having uh, us. Thank you for being here. Yes. I've enjoyed. It's been a fun day. We've had a wonderful barbecue with some, as I said, mimosas and mojitos Mojitos. and some good wonderful company. burgers. Did we do and good company mm-hmm. and uh, uh, look forward to having you on the podcast again. Well, thank, thank you so you. much.
And that was Abney Park with His Imaginary World. And I'm going to call this episode 51. As always, all music is used with permission of the artists. And as always, you can find me hanging out on Facebook on any given day. To close out today's episode, this is Spiral Dance with The Door. Until next time, brightest blessings. Where the green ones breathe